Hello and welcome to Andraste's Gadfly, the podcast where we apply philosophical theories and concepts to the games we love. I'm Jill Fellows. And I'm Kira Thompson. And we've been away for a while and are now running behind schedule. But what can I say? Last semester was a lot, I think, for both of us. And yeah, a lot. (laughs) And as I've said in the trailer, this podcast is a total labor of love. But we are back. And this week, we're going to get back into the swing of things by doing some more mini moral dilemmas, which is actually what we did for our first episode back in episode one. And it feels like a good place to begin after our very long and somewhat unintentional hiatus. (laughs) So last time we looked at very small elements of the game. I say small because they don't have a big effect on the overall plot. They do obviously have moral components and they may have an effect on the player and the player character. And this time, I think we're going to have a little look at bigger decisions. (laughs) So... From Origins, we're going to look at the fate of Loghain. From Dragon Age 2, we're going to look at the fate of Anders, which we've actually discussed in a previous episode about romance, but we're circling back to it now, looking at the morality. And from Inquisition, we're going to look at the fate of the Wardens after the siege at Adamant. So let's start with our first segment, First Run and Headcanon. Kira, can you tell me a little bit about what you decided to do with Loghain at the end of Dragon Age Origins? Not quite the end, but the almost end. I I always kill him. (laughs) I always Every time. Every single time. Wow. Because at the beginning, it was such a feeling that he had done something wrong in the betrayal. That it was just awful what he did for the king for the wardens it was just such a betrayal and I've never regretted that choice uh oh okay only only when I'm forced to choose between Alistair and Hawk and Dragon Age Inquisition right right it was not an option um but I, I never go I never think back and say oh I wish I had chosen slightly differently there now I will admit part of that is the complex nature of all the steps leading up to that choice I'm really bad at the lands meet like I'm I'm really bad at navigating the approval stuff I don't think I've ever done that well and I don't think I've ever sat down and figure out how do I get the the ending that I want right and so I I always just kind of go with my my default responses and and how I go through that. So I always sort of end up at the position where I've got to choose to kill him or not. And it's like, yeah, you're dead. (laughs) You're dead. (laughs) What about you? Okay, so talking about me, I have to do a little bit of background. So my husband worked through Origins before me. And I remember coming home, I think, I don't know, from work or from visiting friends or something one day, and he was playing the landsmeet scene. And I was like, oh, you're letting Logan live? Like, what are you doing? Because that that opening where Logan, it feels like a betrayal. It, yeah, like it where does. Logan just kind of turns the army around and is like, yeah, we're not we're not doing this. Nope. And all the wardens get killed and Kaylin gets killed and and it feels so visceral. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe it that my partner was just like, well, 
it kind of made sense when he explained his reasoning. And I was like, no, no. And then I got there in my own playthrough. And I mean, Logan has some valid points. Don't at me, internet. But, (laughs) you know, he says things like, he doesn't say Kalen's a fathead, but that's kind of how I think of it. Kalen's a fathead. Yes. Yes, he is. But he, he doesn't, doesn't deserve death. He doesn't necessarily deserve death. No. Fatheads don't deserve death. Otherwise, we might all be in trouble. Right. <laughs> but there is a way in which I can see an argument, almost a, ver- a very coldly pragmatic argument that I don't necessarily agree with, but that I can understand the logic of, which is that Kalen's plan maybe doomed to failure and Loghain wasn't willing to add more bodies on the pile. <laughs> I still think there's a better way Loghain could have done this. I'm not defending his actions, which is why I don't think he should get off scot-free. <laughs> <laughs> but I did kind of understand where he was coming from. Well, I can understand his reasoning and still think he's wrong and yes. that he deserved it. So... <laughs> So when I got to that point, I was absolutely going to quit, kill him. Like, no question. I was so pissed at the betrayal. I actually considered killing him in the combat, right? Because you can do a trial by combat, which we did. Yes. And he lost. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm going in. And everybody's like, no, no, no. This is not how justice works. You can't kill him in front of everyone at the lands meet. That will really screw things up. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's fair. (laughs) But then when I heard his reasoning and his daughter's reasoning, and I thought to myself, it might, you know, like Alistair and I are kind of the only two wardens that exist. It might make practical sense to like have another warden. (laughs) So I have let him, I haven't always, sometimes I do kill him, but I have let him live. And I think the first time I did let him live and as a result, I lost my boyfriend, right? Alistair storms out and he's like, I have nothing to do with this. I'm leaving the warden. And I was like, oh, well, I meant to increase the wardens and I did not. I started with two and I ended with two. (laughs) So (laughs) that's that's the lands meet for me. Um, I think we've already covered the second one, Kira, but just to refresh people's memory, because it has been a while since we did the romance episode. What happens to Anders in Dragon Age 2? What did you do with Anders your first time or your headcanon time? Uh, So the first time I played, and people who listened to the previous podcast where we talked about romance will possibly remember that I was going into this unspoiled to the point where my wife was gleefully watching every time I played to see how close I was to the moment that the Chantry blew up. And uh, and when it happened, was quite gleeful at my response because I was romancing Anders and I stabbed that guy. I just, he was dead to me the first time. Um, I was so And angry. not just dead to you. No, he was dead, dead. I was so mad in part because I was like, look, if, if you had just trusted me, I, I would have done it with you, man. It, again, it was the betrayal. It was, it was the betrayal. It's because um, I was just like, this is really upsetting that you wouldn't trust me to have your back mm-hmm. in committing some light terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> but the second time, though, I did let him live um, because having played it through and made different choices, I, I could see that it wasn't necessarily from his own volition. 
And when I tried to get him to stop, because I didn't do that the first time, the first time I, I just hadn't made the choices in such a way that I was able to talk him back and then justice takes him back over again. Right. So the second time though, when that happened, I was like, oh, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't kill him as opposed to the first time where I had no clue anything was happening. And so it really just came out of nowhere. And I was like, you little jerk, you're now you, you got it. But the second time through and any subsequent playthroughs, I do let him live. It was only the first time I really shanked <laughs> Right. What about you? I think we're probably going to see a pattern here. I tend to, at least in first playthroughs, I tend not to kill people if I don't have to. So just as I spared Logan my first time through, <laughs> I also spared Anders my first time through. And you also have a choice when you spare him, right? You can spare him and like banish him and be like, just get out of my sight. Yeah. Um, or you can spare him and ask him to work with you. It's like the reverse because I kill them the first playthrough and then save them the next <laughs> I have done all three and I've also tried to get him to work with me and had it fail because I didn't have high enough approval and I was siding with the Templars that time through. And then he won't help. I'm making a face. Like, and yeah, yeah. Kira's judging <laughs> you me. You sided with the Templars. We'll come back. I, I try and do all the options in all my playthroughs. <laughs> I want to see what happens. I had one. I've only had one hawk that sided with the Templars. They all, My canon is siding with the mages. <laughs> But what I did the first time through is I spared him and I directed him to help me on what very likely was going to be a suicide mission trying to side with the mages. Right. That, yeah, I actually did try to talk him out of it the first time through. I did see the justice thing. I also wasn't in a romance with him. And maybe that matters for how you feel about the betrayal. And so I tried to I was like, look, if you if this whole thing has about been about uplifting the mages, like now is your time to shine, Anders. The mages are in trouble. Like, let's go do it. Right. Okay. And our third discussion is the wardens at Adamant. So just as a reminder, in Adamant, you are fighting against the wardens. They, the Adamant is their fortress. And they are building a demon army in that fortress by sacrificing some of their people I can't remember how many. I guess every single one that's not a mage is going to be sacrificed yeah. to call forth a demon army. And they're doing it because they think it's the only way that they can stop the next blight. And that's because kind of a big question mark, maybe Archdemon, the bad guy of the of the game, Corypheus, is kind of manipulating them all. They think they're going to die. They think they're going to die. They think we're all going to die, not just them. <laughs> But yeah, they're all hearing the, the calling, which is what happens when wardens get near the end of their life. But they also think like some big nasty stuff is about to go down in Thetis and it's going to put us all in trouble. So they are trying to save themselves, but they're also trying to protect all of us, which is what the wardens have always done. That's that's kind of their duty is to try and protect us all from the blight. Um, so you get to the end and you can decide whether to like banish all the wardens from Thetis. Yep. Or whether to uh, ask them to join in your fight against Corypheus. So once you win this, this bloody, horrible siege at Adamant, that is your choice. So Kira, what do you tend to do? So I have historically always allowed them to stay because I recognize that we need them because I'm going up 
against what seems to be an archdemon and wardens can kill them and we're fighting demons and darkspawn and so it always seemed like keeping them around was a good idea like practically you know practically i i've always been kind of torn on how corypheus manipulates them in the sense that he creates the calling in them but then they they proceed to make some really bad choices possibly of their own volition yeah which you know, makes me always kind of torn about that. But I always generally say, okay, hang around. And then um, one of the gameplay mechanisms is that you can use the wardens in various uh, sort of quests to to do things. And so I just use them completely until there's no, no wardens left, more or less. <laughs> I get the message that now the wardens are pretty much used up and you can't do anything else with wow. them. So I basically am like, yes, pragmatically. Um, it's keeping you here and yeah, you got to atone for what you've done. <laughs> but this last playthrough, I did, I did banish them because it would make Blackwell mad. Right. We have a whole thing we need to do about Blackwell <laughs> at some point. Um, and so sometimes I make a lot of decisions in this game at a meta game level in terms of who I want to piss off more and make suffer more and this was this was one of my playthroughs where I was like I'm okay some context for this playthrough I was trying to romance Solas because I'd never done that before and I accidentally flirted once with Blackwell which locked out that option at the beginning at Haven and so I was really angry at Blackwell to the point where I do all of the Grey Warden quests without him just to make him angry amazing yeah. So ultimately, those are more metagame choices on my part rather than headcanons. Right, so right. ultimately, um, I will generally say you guys can stay, help out. You need to help us now. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. I typically pardon them based on pragmatic grounds. Also, I do think it's not clear how much of this is their own volition. Yes, Corypheus inserted the calling and caused this panic in them. But so it's not the same kind of manipulation as like Corypheus inserting ideas in their head, but it's, it's also like Aramond, Corypheus's servant shows up at the opportune moment and starts like whispering in the leader of the warden's ear, Clarel, right? And telling her like, well, this is what you need to do. And it's, it's unsettling that she decides to do what a Tevinter mage tells her to do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, with, without a whole lot of, it seems critical thought, just sort of oh, this this is what I need to do? Okay, damn the consequences. Blood magic? We're there for it. It yeah. just seemed a little, it seemed a little odd, which is why I'm prepared to say perhaps there was more manipulation. Yeah. On the other hand, or is this just weakness of character that yeah. the, the wardens, part of, I think the problem with the wardens is there, we will do whatever needs to be done. Yes. They definitely have an ends justify the means, which is a bit concerning. Yeah. So <laughs> because they they seem to be willing to go to whatever lengths to stop the blight, even if what they're doing is also causing huge amounts of suffering and damage. And that is definitely concerning. But I think there's also a pragmatic argument to be made there that if you think they're going to cause these kind of trouble. Maybe you want to keep them close and kind of keep an eye on what they're doing and not banish them and have no clue what they're doing. And the game does throw out that if you do keep them, they're possible open to corruption. Yes. 
right? That there is this possibility, right? That it's it's a risky option that it you're is. taking. So it's it's laid out in a way that is not it's not risk free. No, neither way is really risk free. If you banish them, you kind of lose tabs on what they're doing, which ultimately you end up doing anyway. And if you keep them close, there's a risk that like they might again fall prey to corruption but this time be inside the inquisition and know right. like maybe some of your secrets and tactics and that's that's not awesome <laughs> yeah fortunately that doesn't seem to happen at least we don't know i guess we'll have to see in game 4 but at the moment it seems like that that it doesn't happen in any way that impacts game 3 Shall we move to the gadfly and the dragon, our next segment, where we introduce some of the uh, philosophical theories that we're going to reach for and talk about during this philosophical discussion of these games. (laughs) So one thing that I think we talked about last time we did the mini moral dilemmas, and I see it again this time, is that what we have here in the nature of all these is a bit of a clash between different values or different principles. And it's pretty much difficult, I think, or in some cases, maybe impossible to have an unequivocal right answer. Like just as we just said with the wardens at Adamant, there's inherent risks involved in both choices. And it's not clear, especially if it's your first playthrough and you're playing without spoilers, that either choice is going to be quote unquote better. And I think that holds kind of for all of them. So there are ways in which you may have intentions of trying to do something that you have moral reasons for. And you don't always know what the consequences are going to be. And it's not always clear that one situation is going to be unequivocally better than another one. And I think the games actually do a pretty good job of modeling that, that that way that moral dilemmas work. I think so. And if you're playing unspoiled, I think it, it actually does sort of reflect how we are forced to encounter moral choices in the real world, so to speak, that you... You don't get to know what all of the consequences are and how it's going to affect people's lives. But I think while it's while there's not a right answer, I think there are better and worse reasons yeah. for why we choose what we do. So like maybe doing things just to piss Blackwell off. That's not necessarily <laughs> a good choice. That's not a good reason, right? But if it's about being accountable, right? So if someone is going to press me on that and say, okay, why did you banish them? And I say, well, because it would make Blackwell mad. Uh, Someone could legitimately come back and say, well, I don't think that's a very good moral reason for banishing them. (laughs) Um, So when it comes to being accountable for our choices, when it comes to saying that we're justified in our choices, it's quite possible, I think, to have different choices that result in very different things, yet still be justified in the sense that you are ensuring that you are acting for solidly moral reasons, given the facts that what you know, as opposed to non-moral reasons, like I was just really mad at the betrayal. Mm-hmm. That's my only reason for stabbing Anders. Or I thought uh, it would be funny. Or I thought it would be funny. I wanted to see what would happen. Or, right? That those reasons, those aren't good reasons. So we can actually evaluate the kinds of reasons that we're being motivated by. And I think that's ultimately what moral reasoning within Moral Dilemmas is all about. It's exploring the reasons that we are motivated to act certain ways than others. 
which highlights sort of what is what becomes relevant on the moral landscape when we're examining these ideas. And it's also fun that because it's games, we can make choices for morally bad reasons and see what happens. And the stakes are much lower. Very low. And obviously if it's reality. Okay. What kind of theories or concepts do we want on the table today as we talk about these three examples from the games? So I think we need to do the big three, but then throw in because a lot of the decisions that we're making this time have to do with more explicitly questions of justice. Because in most of these decisions, we are in a position of passing a judgment on somebody. That it's not necessarily us making a moral choice about what is right for us to do per se, but it's also what is the right judgment that we should be making when passing that judgment on someone else, whether it's Logan, whether it's Anders, and whether it's the wardens, that it's all about, are we being fair in some sense? Yeah. And I think that that also means... To varying degrees, we've all been, we've been positioned in the games in a position of power to pass judgment to varying degrees, right? So Hawk, I think, is probably in the weakest position of power in this case. But definitely when you're playing the Inquisitor passing judgment on the Wardens, like you are recognized as an authority figure in this world. And so I think that's interesting, too. And it, it means that reaching for concepts of justice is probably a good move when looking at these cases. So in case people don't want to go back and listen to episode one, shall we do quick and dirty reminder of consequentialism? Yes. As the name suggests, this is all about the consequences. Right. So it's the consequences of your actions that matter. And there are varying different consequentialist theories. I think we want one that's quite broad. So you, I think utilitarianism tends to be the one that people default to, understandably. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is it doesn't have to be defined just in terms of psychological states of happiness. We can talk just about generally what benefits the most yeah. number of people, what creates the least amount of harm. Yeah, limiting harm and, in, and benefiting people in general, right? So what we want to do is take actions that have the most benefit for the most number of people and limit the harm as much as possible. Or like if we could eradicate the harm, that would be amazing. Or if all of your choices are bad, you choose the least worst yeah. option that creates the, the least amount of harm or, or bad consequences understood broadly yeah. for, the, for the most number of people. Okay, so we've got our understanding of consequentialism. We're going to use a utilitarian theory where we're going to pick the least worst option. And deontology, what's that one? So this is more focused on the the type of action that you're taking or another way to frame that is motivation. I think it's better to think of it in terms of motivation that some actions are just inherently wrong because of what they require that you intend to do. There are a bunch of different theories within deontological perspectives. You could take sort of rights-based approaches, which is all about people having rights and duties that come with that. Kantianism. Which I think we talked about last time, yeah. You know, you, you need to follow what Kant said was the categorical imperative, which basically boils down to following the commands of reason, whatever whatever those are. Or even more simply, one of the ways he put it was respecting the rational autonomy of all beings capable of rational autonomy. So things like manipulating other people would be off the table. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, respecting people's autonomy, respecting people like you can't use people as a means to an end. Yeah. So that'll be important for the warden's motivation. <laughs> that will be very important. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that the wardens seem to be motivated largely by a consequentialist idea, although they may be misjudging what the consequences of their actions are likely to be. But they don't seem motivated very largely by deontology because they do operate in an ends justify the means kind of way. Although they kind of do operate from the deontological view because within this view, and this is this is the thing, you have to do what your duty is. Yeah. So if they think their duty is stop the blight, hang the consequences, you do what you need to do to do that. And so in that respect, I almost want to frame a lot of their choices framed as a sort of quasi deontological approach where it's, we're going to do what our duty is. And um, sometimes that's going to have bad consequences, (laughs) but the goal is to perform that duty. I mean, one of the problems of course, with deontological theories is, is that inevitably consequences do seem to come in there in some way. But I think if we sort of frame the deontological approach here as fundamentally not treating people as a means to an end and respecting their rights and autonomy, I think that will probably capture the bulk of what we want to talk about. Okay. And then last time we talked a little bit about virtue theory. So this is about attention to character rather than asking, you know, what is my duty? What are the consequences? You're asking what kind of person do I want to be? So this is about the cultivation and development of virtues, basically what we've identified as positive psychological dispositions. Or character traits, yeah. Character traits. Yeah. So the the idea is you want to be an honest person. You want to be a just person. And so in order to do that, depending on the virtue approach you got, I like Aristotle. I like Aristotle where he's like, look, what you want to do is you want to find that middle ground between two extremes. So an honest person, and this is why I love his theory the most, an honest person is not always going to tell the truth. An honest person is going to know when to tell the truth, how to tell the truth, the manner. And honesty then sits between these two extremes where you've got the extreme of excess Mm -hmm. of honesty, where you're just like a blabbermouth, or you're one of those people who tells it like it is, and you're just brutally honest, right? That that's that's a vice on his view. Right. And, you know, the person who's bluntly honest, like that's not virtuous. On the other excess, you've got a deficiency, which is the absence of the virtue. So you've got the lying liar who lies. (laughs) (laughs) And so developing a virtue for Aristotle is walking that middle ground, trying to identify the, the path and doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. And so that's I kind of like his account of virtue. I love virtue theory. It makes a lot of sense of why we think, for example, that Kant's wrong, that you can't you can't lie ever. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can lie sometimes, but it's about knowing when the appropriate time is. So the focus really is with virtue theory on am I being a good person in my life? And it's not about individual actions. It's about holistically looking at your whole life that individual choices are not the subject of this theory. Instead, it's looking at over time, what's your character like? Yeah, I really like that. I like the idea of thinking of morality like any other kind of skill, that you learn it and you practice it and you can become a better moral reasoner over time by practicing virtuous habits. In some ways, the theory can be frustrating to me because, of course, we don't necessarily all agree on what the virtues are, (laughs) and it can be hard to know whether you're practicing the right habits. But one thing I really like about virtue theory is that 
you always have the opportunity to try and turn your life around, to try and turn your character around, to become the kind of person you want to be, right? Like virtue theory to me is, I don't want to say it's a very optimistic theory because Aristotle actually thinks optimism is a vice, but maybe it's a very non-pessimistic, right? Pessimism is also a vice. It's like a realistic theory that we always have room for growth. So we also said we wanted to add some theories or concepts of justice. And two kind of jumped out to me when we were looking at this, restorative justice and retributive justice. So should we talk about those a little bit? Right. So if we think about justice generally, it's the idea of being fair. But justice can be thought of in a number of different contexts. Like you can talk about what's known as distributive justice, which is, you know, how do you distribute resources? Like who gets how much of stuff? But you can also talk about justice in terms of how should we treat people who we've identified as doing something wrong? Which is what applies in these cases. <laughs> yeah. And that's what's going on here. We've got people who we've said, you've done something wrong and now we're going to respond. And it's about being fair. So there's two approaches that are generally identified. So there's retributive justice, which is we want someone to be punished because they've done something wrong. So just sort of to back up, the idea is with any sort of justice as punishment or as a response, the idea is you have to justify the punishment because just punishing someone is not okay. <laughs> Like the, the idea is that if we can't justify the punishment, we are doing a wrong. We right. are doing a harm, right? If you execute someone and you're not justified in it, that's a problem. Right. So just killing Anders at the start of game two, especially if you've never played it before and you don't know what Anders is up to, that's just murder. Right. That's just murder. And if you imprison somebody without good reason, that's kidnapping. Yeah. And, you know, so the idea is retributive justice is framed as answering the question, when is punishment justified? And the answer retributive justice gives is when the person deserves it, right? So is the punishment deserved? It also matters what type of punishment, right? So you have to have punishments yes. that respond to the crime. So if like, if all Anders had done was like, steal some money from the chantry, we might not think it was justified to then stab him. <laughs> Because the idea of dessert is tied up with people's behavior. And this goes with rewards and punishments that what people deserve in terms of our treatment is going to be tied to what they have done. So a disproportionate punishment on retributive justice would not be proper because they don't deserve it. Right. And then we would have done something immoral. Exactly. In metting out too harsh a punishment or perhaps not harsh enough a punishment. Exactly. Now, there are some approaches to justice which are instead focused on the consequences. So consequentialist approaches to justice where it's all about we're justified in punishing someone because it will bring about good social consequences. So it's entirely consequentialist based right. in that sense. Where, it, But that falls under utilitarianism as a moral theory. So it's, it's a, I don't think it's necessary to distinguish that. There's also the issue of like good consequences for who, right? So sometimes I've heard arguments that you punish and it will have good consequences for the perpetrator themselves. Yes. But there's also the idea that you set a punishment 
because it will have social consequences. Yes. So benefits in, in a very broad sense, yeah. right? So that you you deter crime, you right. keep a offender behind bars because they won't be able to do more harm to society, right? right? So those are the justifications on on sort of that on that through that lens. Restorative justice, on the other hand, this looks at not quite what a person deserves. Instead, it's about looking at the at bringing the perpetrator back into the community, restoring the community balance, restoring the the victims to their previous state in some ways. So, for ex- we also can think of it like compensation is mm-hmm. another form of this. It's slightly different, I think, because compensation really is just restoring the victim back to where they were before the harm was caused. At least as much as possible. As much as possible. Whereas restorative justice is deeper because it's about healing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it is about making the community whole again. And it's often uh, victim driven. That is the victims participate in this process because it is about them in part engaged in bringing the perpetrator back into the community as a as a sign of justice as forgiveness in some ways can sometimes play a role where they they stand as having an apology being given to them where there is that sort of process where they reconcile mm-hmm. and sometimes it's not an appropriate process and sometimes it is so in terms of the the goals of restore of restorative justice are in some se- in some sense consequentialist in that you're trying to achieve certain ends by the choices that you're making the goal is in some ways to also respect the fundamental dignity of everybody in there so it's also kind of deontological in that mm-hmm. sense where you're not treating people just as a means to an end right and so it's the idea that the goal of justice should be bringing the community back to a whole community again. It also strikes me that you might be able to look at restorative justice through a bit of a virtue ethics theory at a community level. The idea of trying to heal the community and move the community in the direction you want to see the community go. Yes. Sounds in some ways quite virtue theory, right? The idea that we're not happy with the kind of community we are right now. (laughs) And we're going to find a way to heal from what happened and to move forward as much as possible together. And again, that's not always possible. You can't necessarily always bring the perpetrator back into the community. But that where it is possible, that seems in part to be a, a virtue drive as well. And I think there's an element within restorative justice that recognizes that in many in many cases, perpetrators are operating within institutions that are harmful to them. Yeah. And so it recognizes the way that institutions can operate like like classism and racism and sex, like all of these sorts of things can operate to make people positionally more likely to commit crime, more likely to engage in the immoral behaviors. And so those institutional structures are where we can then sort of put our focus rather than putting resources and time into retributive justice where that might not necessarily be fair because the idea is does this person deserve to be punished because they were poor because they were socialized in such a way and so because they were locked in a circle 
because they were in a circle and mistreated. <laughs> and, you know, so these I think are the sorts of important questions that a restorative justice approach is gonna ask. Okay, so we have our theories and we've hinted a little bit at how we might use them to think about what's going on in the games. So let's move to our next segment, the game as frame, and let's take deontology, consequentialism, virtue theory, and these different approaches to justice. And I guess we'll talk about Logan first. <laughs> let's do that. Let's talk about Logan first. Okay. So when we think about Logan, last time when we talked about these theories, consequentialism often didn't factor into it too much. And part of that is just kind of a practicality about how the games are designed, that the games kind of narratively need to, you to get to the same place. And so your individual choices and the consequences of those choices may not matter too much. When it comes to Logan, though, I think that your choice about whether to kill Logan or not does have consequences that you feel not only in this game, but that keep rippling forward into the next two games. They do. So obviously when I uh, let Logan live and invited him to join the wardens after he betrayed us all and did not march his army in upon my signal to help us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. I'm a little bitter about my choice. After <laughs> I did that, Alistair left. Yes. Alistair refused to be my boyfriend and also left the wardens. And because of that choice, when I played Dragon Age 2, I found Alistair um, as an alcoholic yes. in The Hanged Man, not which is the pub in Kirkwall in Dragon Age 2, not doing very well. And I felt not great about that. I'm laughing through my pain. Um, and then Dragon Age 3 can also be affected by this choice, although it also depends on other choices that you make. Yes. So if I allow Loghain to join the Wardens, as we've said, the Wardens are the only uh, people that we know of who are capable of killing Archdemons. And so when you hit the final battle in Dragon Age Origins, where you're, spoiler alert, fighting an Archdemon, you can let Loghain take that final blow and he'll die. But if you don't send Logan to kill the Archdemon, if you instead take that blow yourself, which you can do, Logan shows up in Dragon Age Inquisition. Yes, he does. And he's now in an interesting position. He's the one sounding the alarm about the Wardens. He's the one who's like, something weird is happening. He takes on that position that otherwise would be held by either Stroud or Alistair, Alistair depending on other choices you've made. It's Logan who's like, I've been working with the Wardens. Um, I am a warden, something weird is happening, we need help. And he's the one who reaches out to the Inquisition saying that the wardens are being corrupted. So he actually takes on quite a pivotal role if you don't kill him, which is kind of, I mean, there are other people that fill that role if he's not there. So like in the grand scheme of things, the consequences kind of end up the same, but there are definitely specific consequences for specific people, which is all to say that the, the consequences do matter you do see ripple effects from the choices you've made they're not huge you do but and again i think this highlights the problem with the theory you don't see any of that until after you've made your choice yes right it that when it comes down to it 
Uh, you can't predict any of that. Like none of it is something that you've been warned about is going to happen. So it's not no. like you can take any of those consequences in that moment of making the choice. So in hindsight, you could say, oh, okay. <laughs> and then have to make a judgment. Was that good or bad? And it's real. I think it's actually really hard to decide. Is it is it a better consequence that I now have the choice to sacrifice Logate instead of having to sacrifice other people? I guess it depends on who the other is. Like right now I'm stuck in a world state that it's Alistair and Hawk that, that I have to choose between. So it's either my one of my boyfriends or the person I was as a player. And that's a really hard choice. But it's, it, it's not clear no. when you are in that position having to make that choice, what are the actual, well, like, what are the consequences that are immediately apparent to me in that choice? Really nothing. <laughs> and I think after the fact, like, up until that point, I did not have a hardened Alistair. Alistair had done everything I'd said. Alistair had never stood up to me. And so I said, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna allow Logan to join the wardens. And Alistair stood up to me. I could not have predicted he was going to do that. Because right. I was playing spoiler free. And I did not expect to find him suffering from alcoholism in Dragon Age 2. I think that consequence is bad. I don't feel good about it after no. I've done it. So if I'm thinking about it from a consequentialism point of view, first of all, you're absolutely right. There's no way I could have predicted that ahead of time. And secondly, I don't feel good about it. I feel like it's the wrong choice. Consequentially, I made an immoral choice. <laughs> well, you made a choice that had big consequences. Yes. Whether it was an immoral choice is now going to be a matter of yeah. what kind of thinking we do about ethics. And if you make a choice not knowing that a certain set of consequences is going to happen, I don't think that makes the choice a morally bad one, a regrettable one. And I think that's an important distinction, right? Like we can regret the decisions that we made without necessarily thinking that they were wrong because, and this goes back to my earlier point about having the good reasons for doing it. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about reasons for saving versus killing Logan. Yeah. So if we think about this in terms of justice, we agree that Logan has done something wrong. Yes. Like when I saved him, it wasn't because I thought he didn't do anything wrong. Yes. <laughs> I definitely thought he'd done something wrong. <laughs> and so now the question is, how do we respond to him doing something wrong? And so here we might reach for some of our justice concepts. So the question is going to be, is this punishment deserved, right? Or is is what we are doing as a as our judgment? Is our judgment one that is deserved? So I think in this sense, if we think of sort of that really old-fashioned approach of an eye for an eye, he has taken uncountable lives yes. at the very, very beginning of that game. His choices have knowingly resulted in the deaths of so many so I think in, in in one interpretation of does he deserve it no questions asked right. yes on the other hand we could say like deontologically that uh, you know the right to life is something that just exists there and even if he took lives that doesn't mean we are now justified in taking his right. so we're not given the option of locking him up <laughs> no we don't get right. that option we don't get that option so I think in some respects, the decision to execute him seems to be, I think, from a retributive standpoint, does he deserve it? It doesn't seem 
undeserved in that I sense. think retributive, we could definitely justify it. Absolutely. But I think so could a, from a, from a ward, turning him into a warden's choice perspective, that's deserved too. I mean, in some sense, giving him to the wardens is a death sentence, just a prolonged death sentence. Yeah. I mean, one, he might not successfully go through the right, so he could die. Once, if he does successfully join the wardens, then he is now committed to fighting Dark Spawn until he dies. Until he dies, right? So, in in that sense, so much of it is framed as how do we want him to die? <laughs> yes. In some ways, this seems very a very Middle Ages, a very old fashioned. Um, approach to justice and punishment and there's a lot of interesting stuff written about this right because an execution sentence used to not just be that you were going to be executed but there used to be like a plethora of ways of how they were going to do it depending on the nature of your crime because of this whole idea that the punishment must fit the crime and sometimes they meant like literally fit it right so whatever you had done would be done to your body yeah We don't hold those views of punishment so much anymore, but that was quite a common view. And there is a way in which giving him to the wardens, it is still a death sentence. It's just a different kind of like we're being asked, what kind of death do you think Loghain deserves is basically the question. Now, what that does invoke is the restorative justice approach, which is which is how can he make up for what he's done? And if can he? Well, that that is going to be part of the question, but I guess the issue is if we're if if death is inevitable, because that's basically seems to be what's on the cards, do we want his death to serve a greater purpose? Right? Is there a way for him to not give give back, I guess in some ways, to to sort of to heal? To heal atone? Atone and, and try and heal. And the curious thing is, you are the person he wronged. Like, yeah. pretty much everyone else he wronged is dead. So <laughs> it's you and Alistair. In, in that sense, as the victim, yeah, having the say over how he should atone and saying, okay, listen, you know what? I was a warden. I'm, a, You know, I'm a warden. You're now going to have to work with me. You have to fight with me. Yeah, it's it's kind of... Uh, a very restorative move in that sense, because it is saying, okay, I'm bringing you back into the community. You've got a chance to prove that you are willing to do the right thing now. Mm -hmm. Because I I don't think you can fix the betrayal. I mean, no, this isn't something where we can set things back to the way they were before Logan decided to walk his army off the field and leave us all to die at the hands of Darkspawn. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So it's not a question of fixing or resetting. It has to be a question of healing. And and it's only within the Grey Wardens that that could happen. Yeah. Which is why it's it's hard because you and Alistair, or at least I and Alistair did not agree about what yes. the path forward for justice was. Yeah. And I think in, in part this goes to what would be the motivation to kill him, right? What is driving it? Is it as a, if it's a desire for revenge, because that was certainly what I was doing. Oh yeah. It was like so much vengeance and anger in my heart. That is not that is not allowed within even retributive justice. Retributive justice cannot be revenge. There's this sense in which that is not how justice operates. That revenge is outside the realm of justice. So those are bad reasons to kill him. Yeah. (laughs) 
But I think they're quite common. There's a real visceral response to what Loghain has done. Yes. And it's hard to separate that visceral it's response. It's an emotional response. I mean, it's an emo emotional response we have. But if we want to be accountable for our decisions in a way that allows us to justify our choices, that alone can't mm -hmm. be enough. It's a signal of the depth of the wrongs that he's done, I think, that we are so emotionally affected by it. And I think that's an important part of our moral landscape to sort of highlight the injustice that he's done. This is why we're justified in punishing him mm -hmm. because of the significant harm that he's done. However, <laughs> now that we're justified in punishing him, we have to be asking what is the proper punishment that he deserves. Yeah. And that I think is, is going to be, is going to be complicated. And I, I, I'm not happy with death. Yeah. So I tend to go with the death shouldn't be on the table as the first response if there are other options. And I think you kind of still get that desire for revenge fulfilled by giving him to the wardens, particularly knowing what is involved. Because in you that. do know, because you are a warden. You're, you have gone through it. You've seen the effects of failure of the rights. You've seen people die fighting darkspawn. So you know this is, this is not an escape for him. Yeah. I do sometimes wonder, is it something about the ritual that they undergo that changes the personality of people? Because what's to stop someone from becoming a Grey Warden and then just hiving off, right? Like, that's what I don't get. Like, in, in like making him a Warden, all of a sudden now he's going to be consumed by duty to fight Darkspawn? Is this now going to... Although and, he does seem to be when we come... Virtue theory will kick in here and say... But he wasn't a good person before. He wasn't exercising virtue and betraying people and not being loyal and not, you know, um, mm -hmm. backstabbing people does not seem virtuous. Why all of a sudden would we trust him as a warden when he's demonstrated a lack of virtue with respect to these things? Would I trust him to fight my back? When I ask him to kill the darkspawn, why am I going to trust that he's going to do this all of a sudden? Yeah. Right. So I find the whole existence of the gray wardens when they like they recruit prisoners and things like this i'm sort of like how does this work but there is this sense in which it's part of the setup that if we recruit him all of a sudden now he's going to be a gray warden consumed with yeah. the duty that everyone else is as well but it's a good point that generally this doesn't occur with logan because gray warden darkspawn blood magic i guess yeah but generally if we're thinking about restorative justice and the victim in this case, my warden has said what they think they need. There is still the question of the character of the perpetrator and how or whether they're going to be able to fulfill what's needed or, or follow through. That is still an issue, right? That's there. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Should we talk about Anders again? <laughs> Let's talk about Anders. <laughs> Okay, so if we think about Anders and we think about these theories, consequentialism, deontology, virtue, and just and our justice um, frames, what what can we say about this decision? There's one thing I want to say just kind of up front, which is that when you're a warden at the lands meet, you have 
a considerable amount of influence by the time you gather everybody together at the Landsmeet, and you are kind of default the head of the wardens because all the other wardens are dead, um, and Aunt Alistair doesn't want to be the head of the wardens. But Hawk and Anders, I find it, there's something I always found a little bit artificial about this, is that Anders is found to have committed this crime of blowing up the Chantry. And the officials who you would think would met out justice are there, right? So Orsino, the head of the mages, and Meredith, the head of the Templars, are there. And they both just kind of, regardless of who you side with, they kind of turn the decision over to you, right? They're like, okay, well... I'll meet you for the final battle later. You deal with your friend. I'm out. (laughs) And I find that so strange. It is strange. I mean, I know from a game perspective why it has to happen. Yes. But from a justice perspective, it is kind of the people who have the authority in the city to met out the justice are just turning that authority over. Yeah. And in some ways, I guess we could take a restorative lens, although Anders did betray you, but you're not really the only victim of Anders's crime so it's not it's not strictly a restorative lens to turn the the decision over to you it is I think mainly a game pragmatic lens and it is kind of weird from a moral standpoint yeah so part of the issue that always strikes me as a, a huge problem with figuring out how to respond to Anders is has he done something wrong yes Because if he hasn't done something wrong, you're not justified in punishing him, right? Right. So you have to establish that he's done something wrong. So what's the wrong? So when I've killed him and meted out justice, some some sort, it's always because I felt betrayed that the wrong was a personal betrayal, that the wrong was not the blowing up of people and that stuff. The wrong was not trusting me. The wrong was... The manipulating of you? The manipulating of me and the not trusting me to come along with his terrorist plans. So again, it comes back to how the only time I killed him was because I didn't see it coming. And I, you know, it was, I was really emotionally driven by that one. But I find that interesting because I certainly, like, if you side with Meredith, if you side with the Templars... Mm -hmm. She turns the decision over to you. Yeah. And I certainly don't think that Meredith thinks no. that the Ron is that Anders betrayed me. Yes. I no. think she <laughs> thinks that the Ron is that he blew up the chantry and yes. killed everybody inside. Part of me is going to try to justify that within the game as sort of, let's make it Huck's problem. Right. Which happens a lot. Which happens. It's the whole game is let's make this Hawk's problem. And if something goes wrong, we've got our sacrificial lab. We've got our scapegoat that we can blame it on Hawk. That's Hawk was the problem. Hawk didn't, Hawk didn't deal with his buddy the way he or she should have. And that's why Anders got Scott off scot-free or, well, we didn't want to kill Anders, but, but Hawk did Hawk did it. Right. So yeah. the idea allows for the sidestepping of responsibility yeah. in a way that I, I totally would buy within the game, given how so much of the decisions play out. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of government officials sidestepping Just responsibility in their jobs all over the place. <laughs> yeah. But I think this raises an interesting question, which is even before we get to the question of what justice Anders deserves, there is the question of. What exactly was the wrong that Anders committed? 
because it is yes. Meredith does not think the Ron is betraying you. She probably doesn't really no. care whether Anders betrayed you or not. No. Um, except insofar as if Anders didn't betray you, you are complicit and also guilty. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's really interesting that when we approach these things, people can have different opinions about what the injustice was. Because there are certainly a lot of people who think the injustice was the act of terrorism, not the act yeah. of betraying you, or in addition to the act of betraying you. Yes. And when it comes to the blowing up of the Chantry, I really always do have to ask that question, why would I be so willing to go along with him? And that's usually because I'm playing as a mage. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why I'm always going to side with the mages, is that at least unambiguously within Kirkwall, the circle is awful yes. for mages. Yes. And I'll just point out, Anders has... A spirit of justice in him. I mean, <laughs> who has been transformed into vengeance? <laughs> you say potato, I say potato. <laughs> Just say it. No, it's fair enough. That is absolutely a fair thing. You know, what's the line between justice and vengeance? <laughs> yeah, I think Anders is very interesting on that because Rons have been committed to the mages, especially in Kirkwall, not exclusively in Kirkwall. Anders was in another circle that did not sound that great yeah. before he ran away, right? And so all across Thetis, the mages are being harmed. And so is Anders' act an act of justice against the Rons that have been harmed to the mages? He doesn't have the power to do that, but how do you met out justice when you aren't given the authority? Right. Is another kind of question, right? How do you transform things? And I mean, you see throughout the game how mages are trying, like Orsido is trying to draw attention to how they're just being defaultly assumed to be evil for no good reason. Although Orsino is evil, but... Is he? Uh, I mean, <laughs> again, this is why I think the institutional structures within which people are acting have such a profound influence on him. So yeah. his entire experience within the circle has been one of profound injustice where mages are committing suicide throughout his life around him. He's seeing all of these terrible things happen. Yeah. At Mage children are taken, taken away, away from their parents. So I think one of the things for me, and this kind of came up in the real world when people engage in acts of civil disobedience uh, and when people remove themselves from what we could call the social contract, right? So that when it comes to our understandings of what is appropriate action within society or not, is often presumed to be operating with, well, because we agree to certain moral things like don't kill people because it protects everybody. But it's not protecting them. The social, the so-called social contract that is sort of underlying why we try to behave morally or at least be minimally decent people in society, agreeing to that is not benefiting them. And they are not protected by that social contract. So is it disproportional that he blow up the chantry? Mm, I mean, he could have blown up all of Kirkwall. <laughs> yeah. He made a decision. And I can't believe I'm justifying it. But I feel like in some ways, when it comes to the basic idea of being a minimally decent person in society, it almost feels like the mages that have been so mistreated might have an out. <laughs> sort of like, okay, you know what? 
screw you all, I'm done. So if we think about retributive justice, right, one of the issues we had is whether you can use retributive justice to protect society, right? So the idea that you lock people up, removing them from society so that society is safer, that's what is happening to the mages, right? The mages, in some sense, have been removed from society. They are separated, especially in Kirkwall. Like, it seems like it's less so in Orlais, like Vivian is part of society. But in Kirkwall, the mages are not, like, out and about, hanging are... out, <laughs> holding public office, anything like that, right? Yeah. They have been removed. And so it does seem that you could make the argument that justice is not serving them, that you could in a way, try and justify this action as coming from a place where they have already been failed by the models of justice that are in place. Yeah, that justice considerations now seem to be different I mean, in terms of mm-hmm. the demands that can be made of them, in terms of the expectations of nonviolence, expectations of behaving normally, that why would we? It's almost like it, they're already existing in a state of nature in that sense that they they don't have they don't have the luxury of laws because it doesn't apply to them. Yeah, in some sense, society at large has already decided that their very existence has committed an act of injustice. Yes. And they're being punished. Right. They're already being punished before they commit Without any crime. justification. Interesting. Insofar as he has committed a wrong. And let's say that he has committed a run, at least against Hawk and Hawk's companions, by using you unwittingly for his own ends without telling you what's going on. There's a way in which not killing him and inviting him to fight alongside you could also be a restorative approach in terms of restoring the relationships that you are in and rebuilding the trust that has been lost. And in, in some respects, too, getting him to fight with you against the Templars is an opportunity for him to work towards justice for the mages and making sure that... And to fulfill what his intention was in the first place before his own spirit of justice kind of got in there. (laughs) Nice. The last one that we have to talk about is the fate of the wardens at Adamant. Consequentially, this turns out pretty much the same. I mean, you can do things like if you bring them into the Inquisition, Mm -hmm. you can send them out on a whole bunch of missions. Although a lot of the missions, you know, you you might get some trinkets and a little bit of information, but it doesn't change mm-hmm. the game a whole lot. Like I've played the whole game not yeah. doing hardly any missions at the war table. Yeah. And it's just very fine. little. Very little. And whether you bring them into the Inquisition or not, either way, the wardens eventually, whatever is left of them, end up at Wysop and you lose communication with them. Yeah. Which They're is just chilling. Gone somewhere for download content in the future. Yeah. So the consequences don't change based on your decision, basically. I mean, we can imagine that the consequences probably, like if this were a real situation, the consequences would change in a variety of different ways. You have more people in the Inquisition and also more threat of corruption. If you do use use them at the war table, you actually do get a bunch of missions where you successfully defeat Darkspawn, you save people. Um, So in that sense, they can be quite useful and have good consequences if you keep them in the Inquisition. And it actually, the threat that you were warned about, at least in the playable game that we have right now, does not materialize. So we don't end up with wardens again being corrupted by Corypheus before we kill him. That doesn't happen. There's no sign of that. 
No. There may be something that happens in the future. Why Soft is a big question mark right now. Um, although that happens either way. So yeah, what you don't have the option to do is like execute all of them. So we yeah. don't have to discuss capital punishment here. Nope. That's not on the table with the wardens, I guess, because they're already living a death <laughs> sentence as we already discussed. But I do think that there's quite a bit to talk about in terms of intention here. As you mm-hmm. said, uh, Warden Clarel, who is the commander of the wardens and all the wardens in general have a very duty based moral system. And it also is often a very ends justify the means mm-hmm. moral system where they will kind of do whatever they need to do in order to put down the dark spawn. Yeah. And I find that unpalatable. <laughs> I do too. On the other hand, I mean, because of the manipulation bit, so much of it is difficult to ascertain how much of it was their own motivation versus the, this manipulation. And mm-hmm. It, absent that manipulation, is this something they would entertain? Yeah. And I, the answer is yes. I think they would yep. because that's how they are. And I think this goes back to virtue theory in terms of this is the character that somehow they all managed to develop after taking in the dark spawn blood. Maybe there's a causal connection there. Maybe. That it changes their character, but it's certainly that they they do not seem to exhibit virtuous character in terms of moderation no. in understanding how to achieve their goals, right? That that's a problem. This is also, I think, part of part of the issue I have with this as a as a deeply moral choice, because I don't think it is. It's not clear they want to stay. I mean, it's so. I just find it a decision that's odd in some respects. Like to bring them into the Inquisition? Well, as as framing it as yeah, it in terms of I mean, intention-wise, I don't think there's anything bad with either choice. Because it is framed as though you are passing a judgment it, on them, right? It is. So we should circle back to the Inquisition sometime and talk about justice because this is the game where you are positioned in having the yeah. most authority to make decisions of justice right to dole out punishment like there's whole mini games about this where you sit on your throne and dole out punishment but it also happens in world and here's an example where you are called upon in the middle of a quest or at the end of the quest to dole out punishment and it is definitely treated like that right like a case is presented for why you should banish them because they are a risk and they've already done all this terrible stuff. They've killed a whole bunch of their own people and brought forth a whole bunch of demons through using blood magic. And this is dangerous. But there's also the intention is appealed to that they were misguided, much in the same way we've talked about with Anders. They didn't make this decision entirely on their own. So Anders is influenced slash possessed by justice and they are influenced by Aramond and and manipulated by Corypheus. And so how heavy can our punishment be when they weren't necessarily acting of their own volition? But it is framed that we are meting out a punishment yeah. and our choices are banishment or join the Inquisition and help us. And you might think that this is maybe not that kind of situation, but the game definitely frames it like that. It does. And what's what's interesting too is it frames it is is framed as a as a justice question right after I've come out of the fade, <laughs> having sacrificed someone that I do care about in some respects because I don't have Logate or Stroud to kill off. Um, <laughs> oh Alistair or Hawk, the characters we care about. So so 
I've, I've been through this traumatic experience and I'm now being put in a position where I'm supposed to cast judgment on the people that caused this. Yes. And I think that's, what's really interesting is that in, and we can talk about this maybe in another, in another discussion of justice, but I'm always being called to pass judgment on things that are personal. Yeah. And we have talked about these visceral personal reactions and how that's not necessarily the best headspace from which to dole out justice. If we're thinking about justice, usually justice carries with it these ideas of impartiality and you're not personally invested in what's going on. But and I but I think when it comes to my decision about the wardens, I always make it based on how's this going to help me. And that's why I'm keeping them, because I need everyone I can get to defeat this guy in the long term. So which means it's not necessarily what they deserve or what would no. heal the community. It ends up no. being a very pragmatic decision. It's interesting how the game frames it. And I think bringing them into the Inquisition for me doesn't feel like a punishment. Mm-hmm. It feels like I'm helping them out. Yeah, but banishing them is punishment. That yeah. if, even if it's not, <laughs> it feels like a punishment. No, I think even just using the word banishment, mm-hmm. right? That evokes that notion. It's meant to be punished. It's it's punishment. That's true. Whereas when you tell, if you tell Anders, get out of my sight as Hawk, it's not a banishment. You're not saying like you right. can never enter yeah. the city of Kirkwall, even though practically that's probably <laughs> what is true. He probably shouldn't go back there. <laughs> but it, it's more of a disgust reaction. Yeah, it's just like, I can't deal with you right now. And that's another thing I want to talk about with the wardens is that I think it would be completely fair for the Inquisitor to just be like, I can't deal with this right now. Like there's a way in which justice, to my mind, there's a practicality that justice should take time. And we often aren't given time. No, not in the games you're not. For, for No, and so that talks kind of the larger question of the way the games are framed mm-hmm. is that there isn't a lot of room for deliberation. There often isn't a lot of room for gathering different opinions. Like I couldn't talk to Alistair before deciding what to do with Loghain. Insofar as Loghain has wronged both of us, it feels like we should have a conversation, but that's not there, right? So the the idea of having time to gain evidence, collect your thoughts is often not there, which I think is is an interesting, I mean, it definitely ups the gameplay. Yeah. <laughs> but from a real world perspective, that's maybe not that helpful. No, if we're making big societal changing decisions, those are things that should take time. I mean, so so many of these particular choices are choices that are not forced in the moment. Yeah. We could take more time if the game allowed us to, but the game doesn't. Yeah. So shall we move to our last segment to talk about what we've learned here? Let us. A modern girl in Thetis. One of the things that I want to talk about is, yeah, that these choices are often forced, and that seems a bit artificial. It's part of the gameplay, I understand. But And the other thing that we've talked about is that there are often alternatives that you might want to explore, <laughs> that the, cho- the choice is not there, yes. right? Yes. Like, no matter what you do, you're giving Logan a death sentence. I'm not saying that we want to let him off scot-free, but that choice isn't there if that's something you wanted to explore. <laughs> yeah. So... That's something that I think is perhaps a limitation, but I do still think that there are things we can learn. Like one thing that I think is interesting is that really any approach to justice, whether it's restorative or retributive, can be hard because of 
our own personal emotions going into them. And a lot of these choices that we've looked at, we have been, or our character has been affected personally. Yes. And it can be very hard to separate the personal feeling of desiring vengeance or wanting them to hurt because they hurt you from kind of questions of what do they deserve or what would heal the community. Yes. I think that's really big. And I think the game does that really well. It often lets us give in to the vengeance if we want to. It does. (laughs) Even though we might regret it. (laughs) I think that's one of the nice things about the game too, is because in allowing you to play with that, you can see what the effects of that can be. That sometimes it's not always going to make things better to give in to that vengeance. Mm -hmm. That it's like, well, okay, now they're dead and we're still where we were anyway. It's not made that big a difference. So what have we achieved? Right. And so that it it kind of, I think, points nicely to the way in which vengeance is empty Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Like at the end, you might have satisfied some feeling in the moment, but it doesn't do anything. Yeah. It's not going to fix problems. It's not going to help make things better. So if you were angry, banishing the wardens just costs you a bunch of tasks that you could have completed and people you could have saved at the war table and now you can't. Yeah. I mean, it might achieve some ends, like making Blackwall unhappy if that's what (laughs) you want. But again, (laughs) in the end, does that, does it help? No. I mean, and now this is also an issue for how the game frames a lot of moral choices within the game that they don't have a lot of effects. So, but when it comes to the experience of that, and that's the great thing about replaying and doing, making different choices is that you're able to see how in so many ways vengeance is not going to get us where we necessarily want to get, but neither sometimes will justice. Yes. Right. That, that even if you are making the choices from the right motives and the right reasons, and you've got your accountability, like I'm doing it for the right reasons, things can still suck. Things yeah. can still be awful and your choices can still be miserable. And your boyfriend can still leave you and end up an alcoholic in uh, yeah. in Kirkwall, even though you thought you were doing something that you had good reasons for. <laughs> yes, because when it comes down to it, All we can do is control our responses to the situations that we're given and we can't control how other people are then going to respond, which is, and I think I kind of like this some ways about the the game play is sometimes you make choices and you don't expect your character to say what they're going to say. Yeah. We can't even necessarily control ourselves because you pick the choice on the wheel dialogue wheel and then the character says something else. Although to be honest, like, who hasn't had the experience of stuff coming out wrong when you're chatting? Right. <laughs> right. So there's there's a lot that kind of resonates. Yeah. Um, but also that justice, acting from justice can be very difficult. That this is something that, and figuring out what's fair is something that we sometimes have to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something that the, the game does do well, is that it it doesn't make the choices obvious because in some games they make the choices quite obvious. But what I don't the good think choice is? What yeah. the good choice is? Whereas you don't have that here. Yeah. Right. You, you're not being judged in terms of your judgments. You are simply who you are, and your judgments sometimes have an effect on the world, and sometimes they don't. Um, and I think that's actually that's kind of really how the real world is too. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you for joining us for episode six of Andraste's Gadfly. We will be back again sometime to talk about these games again. This was so much fun, Kara. Thank you. Thank you for chatting with me. It's always fun. I hope everybody has a good one. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.